Inner chaos is part of so many lives. When we go through it, we often try to hide it on the outside. Now I'm okay. I'm all good. But inside, there's a struggle. Why do I feel this way? Am I broken? Am I the only one feeling like this? When people connected with Jesus, they would grow to trust Him, pull down the mask they wore. Kia ora everyone. Good to see you guys here. As we begin, uh, let's, be, let's pray together. Lord, I, I'm so thankful that we get to gather here tonight. Um, Lord, and for this, this last series that we've been doing for the last few weeks, it has been, uh, in some ways, incredibly hard as we begin to work through some really uh, difficult and complex issues. Uh, God, it's really hard because there are things that we've been talking about in these evenings that, that cut quite deep for us. It's not the run-of-the-mill topics, the things that are really close and dear to our hearts. But in the same time, as, much, as difficult as they have been sometimes, God, I thank you that you've been here with us each and every night. Because as we go through this difficult journey, learning that it's, it's okay to be who we are, and it's okay to come to you with our brokenness, with our doubts, our fears, our anxiety, our pain, our grief, and that as we come to you, we find a healing that only you can give. So as we gather tonight around your word, we pray that you would speak to us. As you have these past few weeks, you would continue tonight. Amen. Just outside of Jerusalem, there's a small town uh, called Bethany, just on the outskirts. Uh, it was pretty much a through town that people would go through all the time on their way to Jerusalem when they're coming from other places. And in this town, there's this small family that we read about. It's a, a brother named Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And throughout the scriptures, we find that they have this wonderful um, encounter with Jesus. Uh, they develop a relationship with him. Lazarus particular de particularly develops this wonderful relationship with Jesus. And this family is doing, in many ways, quite well. Until one day... Martha notices that Lazarus begins to cough, begins to not feel quite like himself. And at first, I'm sure she probably didn't think much of it, but things progressed quite quickly. And before they knew it, Lazarus had become quite ill. And so they tried to wait it out. They tried to do everything that they normally should do in this situation, but nothing seemed to work. And so Lazarus became more and more ill. And so they get to this stage where Martha and Mary are now genuinely concerned about their brother's health. <clears throat> and so they do the one thing that they know to do. They grab one of their friends and they tell him, you've got to go find Jesus. Because Jesus has been the only one who we know who's been able to take people on the brink of death like our brother is and actually do something about it. You've got to go find him quickly. And so they dispatch this person, and he runs off to go find Jesus. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus wait. 
with all of their hopes and all of their prayers and all of their expectations put upon this one person. They wait that he would come through and deliver them, deliver their brother from the sickness that had gripped him. And they wait. And they look on the horizon, but no one seems to be coming. And then quicker than you could imagine, quicker than any of us or anyone could have ever thought, Lazarus becomes more sick and more sick. And before they know it, he passes away and dies. But Jesus is still nowhere in sight. See, Israel's not that big. They knew the messenger probably could have gotten there within the day. It would have only taken Jesus a day to get there, but he didn't show. And now Lazarus is dead. And because back then they didn't have all of the fancy tools and, and science that we have nowadays to preserve a body, once Lazarus had passed away, they needed to work quite quickly. And before the end of the next day, Lazarus is anointed, wrapped, and put away into a tomb, laid to rest. As the rest of Mary and Martha's extended family comes from Jerusalem and the surrounding cities to mourn with them. And before they know it, though they knew the right person and though they did everything that they should do, and though they knew that Jesus was capable of doing this one miracle, before they know it, Mary and Martha are plunged into the world of grief. Deep, painful, aching grief. And if there's one thing that's certain about life is that every single one of us will go at some stage through something of grief. Whether it's through a close family or friend passing away, whether it's someone expected through illness, suicide, or a car crash, or whether it's semi-expected as one of our beloved elders, grandparents, fathers, and mothers pass away after a long battle with an illness. We encounter different griefs of a sudden loss of a job, having to move to a whole different town or city and losing the life that we had in, a, in situations of divorce where there is breakdown in relationship. We grieve the loss of what could have been. And all of us, at some point, will walk through it, which sucks. When it first uh, hit me, I'd, I'd thought I was relatively well acquainted with grief. Uh, as a missionary kid, I moved uh, quite a bit. And there's always the sense of grieving in every single move, particularly when you're moving nations. Was, back then, there was no way of maintaining those friendships. Once you moved, you'd moved. And so I thought I'd become quite used to this process of grief and, and learning to let go and allow myself to work through the process of sadness and loss until grief hit again. And often when grief hits, it hits so quick and so hard that you, don't, you can't control it or contain it. It just, it just is. About three, four years ago when we had uh, just moved into this uh, wonderful nation, 
Haley and I were fairly recently married, and we decided that it was time for us to start a family. And we thought, oh, we'd love to have some kids, uh, you know, just to, to do life with. And like every um, young couple, uh, or like most young couples, when we thought we'd start that journey of having kids, we thought it would be immediate, instantaneous, and easy. Uh, I grew up in a Christian context, so I had always learned that if you ever have sex once at any point in time, someone will get pregnant. Like, that was a guaranteed, done deal. Sex equals baby. Soon learned that it's actually not, not that simple. Although, in a way, it was. We, we fell qu- pregnant quite quickly. But for our first pregnancy, it got a little complicated. Um, the... The fertilized egg, rather than moving down and settling in the uterus where it should grow healthily, actually got stuck in uh, Haley's fallopian tube in what would become, uh, it's commonly called an ectopic pregnancy. And what it meant is because of our situation and because of some other complications, uh, Haley came very close to dying and she had to go in hospital and go through surgery and have a lot of the stuff removed. And so before we knew it, when we were at one sense so excited about the life that we might No, it was suddenly plunged into anxiety and and grief and loss and fear as my wife honestly came within a week of dying. And then through the surgery, there were big questions about whether we would actually ever be able to have a family. And we went through some grief. And then every month we thought, okay, well this month, you know, we'll try again, see if we can can have, have a child. But things were complicated after the surgery, and for months and months and months, nothing happened. And you know it should take a little while, but there's a sense of grief when every month when you don't have that child, it's a, it's a journey that only couples that have been there can understand. Every single month becomes a new grieving for a loss of what might never be. And we grieved again. And we thought, God, why are you doing this to us? Why, is it, why does it have to be this way? Until one wonderful day in July, Haley became pregnant. And we were so excited and terrified and overjoyed and fearful that we didn't know what to do. We just kind of stared at each other like, <laughs> you know, we were so excited that we actually got the chance to have children, but terrified because of what had happened last time. And as many, some of you may know, some of you may not know, is that often in the, those first 12 weeks of pregnancy, you're at your greatest risk of a miscarriage. It's statistically incredibly higher during that period than any other time in your pregnancy. And so we didn't want to tell anyone because we couldn't bear having to go through that grief on such a public stage again with our whole church family in Auckland. And so we kept it really quiet until 12 weeks came along and uh, we were so excited. We went and had the scan. Again, for those of you who are parents, particularly most, I'd imagine most of you can remember with your first child, that first scan that you do. And you get to see, well, you don't really see anything, but you trick yourself into thinking you see stuff. Like, I see a baby, not just a blob of white and black. Um, And I remember how much joy we felt. It was so cool. And so we did everything we did. We, We came up with a really clever Facebook post that announced we're having a kid and, you know, it got a couple hundred likes and we felt good about that. And We told family and they were all excited. We told grandparents, so cool being able to tell your parents for the first time they're going to be grandparents. It was awesome. And so for the next few weeks, we were just in on cloud nine. Couldn't wait for everything that was going to happen. But grief hits 
unexpectedly and in, in ways you can't expect and ways you can't control. Haley went uh, to a routine midwife appointment and uh, while she was there, they're going through all the normal stuff and so they get out kind of the, the listening device and she just wants to check the baby's heartbeat and as she checks, she just has a hard time finding it. She just can't quite locate it. And so the midwife, still staying pretty calm, says, um, I'm just having difficulty hearing your baby's heartbeat. Can I just recommend that, just, why don't you go in today for a scan? Just, you know, they can double check and make sure everything's there. And Haley remembers the midwife being a little bit, though her tone was pleasant, there was something in her eyes that registered that there wasn't, something had gone wrong. But because of what we'd been through, we, shot, we thought, surely we, this isn't us again. So Haley, feeling quite calm, just gives me a ring and says, oh, hey, I was just at the midwife's appointment. I'm just going to, she's just recommended I go get a scan. It's, uh, it's going to be fine. No big deal. And so I don't think anything of it. I think, okay, cool. We had some friends staying with us at the time, so I was hanging out with them. And until uh, about 20 minutes, half an hour later, I get a call back from Haley. And uh, she doesn't say much on the phone. All she says is, Colin, you need to come down here. And I can hear her voice quivering, and I can, I can hear her crying on the other side, but there's not much that she can say other than, you just need to come down here right now. I thought, surely not us. And again, what are the chances? It, it can't be that, but I knew that tone of her voice. And so I got, got in the car, and I drove. And I've never prayed more honest prayers than when I was behind that wheel. Every prayer that I knew how to pray, God, you are powerful. You can do anything. Jesus comes. Come save our boy. I went, through, I went through every bit of negotiating that I could. You know, I don't know why, but somehow when you're in those stages, I thought if I can just negotiate, God, I promise I will do everything I can for you that you'd ever wanted. I will, I will fix everything. I'll, I will dedicate my life to you, which is ironic because I was already going into ministry, but I thought there was something else I could give. I could give something to God and I negotiate and I pray so honestly and so deeply on this drive as my hands begin to clench tighter on the steering wheel and I pull in to the ultrasound place and I walk through the doors and I say, I'm here to see my wife Haley and they take me around into a corner. And it's hard to forget being able to, opening up the door to that room and seeing my wife on the floor, weeping. And so I go, I sit down next to her. She says, he's gone. His heart stopped beating about three weeks ago. And they said there was no way I could have known, but surely I could have known, right? He's my child. And so we sit there in this ultrasound place, just weeping together. Not sure what to say, not sure where to go. It's the most uncomfortable place because the door is still kind of open and there's all these new mothers walking in there to get their scans there. And we have to be there, knowing that our baby's heart stopped beating. Then the, the, 
the most complicated thing is that we had to then sit down and talk with the ultrasound person who then had to send us to a doctor's visit, and the doctor's visit then had to recommend us to go to the hospital, and then we had to go to the hospital, and finally realizing that because Haley was 17 weeks pregnant, we still had to go through a delivery. We still had to check into the hospital. We'd have to get loaded. Haley would have to get loaded in with synthetic hormones that would stimulate a labor in the same way a full-term woman would. And there's something so sickly perverse about knowing that you as a family are going to have to go through the process of giving birth to something that will not live. Grief hits like a hammer and it's, it's out of control. And where does faith fit into that? Where does God fit into that story? Now, I was training for ministry. In fact, I was a couple years in, and at that stage, I had gone through pastoral care classes where they talked to you about the right process to go through grief. And they had talked to me about, as a pastor, here are the things that you need to say to that person, and here's what you need to walk them through, and this is what you need to talk to them about. And so I sat there sitting here with all this knowledge and all this, these, these shoulds, these oughts, what I should be saying, what I should be thinking, that I began to self-diagnose myself so much that I said, how do I even grieve? What do I even, how do I even talk to God? You know, one of the most frustrating things about this whole journey is we go through grief and as we go through pain, and as we go through difficulty, one of the most natural responses is we want to yell, fight, and get angry at God. But if you've grown up in the church long enough, you've heard enough testimonies where someone will always say, but why would you fight with God? You know you're going to lose. And usually in those testimonies, it's funny. Until you're the one who's suddenly trapped with an emotion that you can't express because you can't even vocalize it to God. As I sit there diagnosing my grief, saying, well, okay, I know I probably need to go through the stage where I get angry at God. And then once I get angry at God, you know, then I'll yell at him. And then once I yell at him, I'll feel better. And then once I feel better, then I'll be able to talk about it with other people. And then once I talk about it with other people, I'll be able to go to a place of healing. So why don't I just skip all of this grieving stage and go to that place of healing? Because I already know what I'm supposed to do. And so I sat there in the hospital as they begin to give Haley the medication, diagnosing myself and talking with her, feeling completely unable to grieve because I'd had so much theology taught to me that it inhibited me from actually expressing anything. And this is why I am so, so thankful for this story in the Gospel of John. Because these biblical characters were able to do what I was not able to do. See, about a week, just under a week after they sent for Jesus, Jesus comes waltzing back into town. Just comes right in like nothing's wrong, like nothing's the matter. And that's why I'm so happy with these sisters' response. Because both of them, when they came to Jesus, they said the exact same thing. And it's the same thing that I desperately wanted to say, but didn't know how to say. When they saw Jesus coming in, the first thing they say is, Jesus, if you were here, my brother would not be dead. Jesus, I've heard about those miracles. I know those stories. 
If you would have just come, if you would have been here, my brother would be alive today. And it's not even a problem of distance. There was that time you healed a centurion servant, some Roman official who was oppressing my people. You healed his slave from afar. But you loved my brother. You loved us. And if you'd have been here, you wouldn't have died. Mary says the same thing when they go and they grab her and Mary comes to Jesus. She says the same thing, Jesus. If you were here, he'd still be alive. And in that one voice, in that one breath, in that one sentence is everything that I wanted to say. There's questions of why. Why? I have a friend, I have a mentor who I met in YWAM, who he himself, when was a child, when he was four years old, he died on an operating table. And as his family prayed for him, he came back. I have a father whose back was so bad, it was, he could not walk, and God miraculously healed him, and his back has never given him issues again. See, I know that God can. So why the hell didn't he? And Jesus hearing these two, these two women and their questions, What he does next is so fascinating. Because the truth is, is if you read the story in whole from the first moment that Jesus hears about Lazarus, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, this sickness will not end in death. In fact, God is going to use this to glorify his name. And Jesus says it a few more times, even as he discusses it with his disciples. So when Jesus walks into the town, he knows what is going to happen. And he knows that Lazarus will be raised from the dead. And he knows that the grief of this woman is just temporary. But instead, John records arguably one of the most wonderful passages in all of Scripture. Upon hearing their words and seeing their deep emotion and distress, Jesus wept. Jesus wept with them. Rather than moving through a theological study or discussion about why the resurrection will happen and why the resurrection will matter. And so it's okay. Don't worry about that. Just move on from your grief. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. Your feelings aren't valid. This grief process you're going through, don't worry about it. It's all going to be better. Just just ignore it. Instead, Jesus pauses. He listens. And he weeps. See, in, in the Christian faith, we are often at a real dilemma. Because one of our favorite words for Jesus is Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Jesus, our healer. Jesus, our provider. 
our Redeemer. He breaks our chains. He sets us free. We have wonderful language to describe the healing, life-giving, freeing works that Jesus does. But it means that we can often miss out on the language where we understand Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus, who came and upon hearing the cries of his people, weeps and mourns with them. Our God is one who mourns and grieves alongside of you and alongside of me. As we were in the hospital, we, we went through the process of um, Haley going through labor, which was terrifying because we'd not been through any classes. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to expect. It was suddenly this onslaught of pain and cramps suddenly hits Haley like a brick wall and we're suddenly thrust into something that we feel so unprepared for and unsure of what to do. We don't even know what the right answer is. We're just there doing what the doctors tell us to do. And the whole time, deep within me is that question, God, why? If, if you were here, if you were really God, my son would be alive. We've already been through this once. Why us again? And as we raged, as we went through labor, there was this sense of rage that we went through personally as we grieved and as we lost and as we went through this pain. And then eventually, our son was born. And it wasn't pretty. It was a really ugly and complicated process. But eventually, there was a moment that I'll, I'll never forget. They, once he was born, they'd taken him away and they'd, they'd cleaned him up and they brought him back to us in this small little woven basket. And, uh, and they handed him to us. And after all of the chaos of this labor and the noises and the beeping of the machines and the screaming and the crying, suddenly everything became so, so quiet as I held my son in my hands. He, um, he was barely bigger than the size of my palm. And in this silent place, in that holy space, something really miraculous happened that is difficult for me to describe in any way or shape or form. Haley and I just wept, just, no one should have to hold their son this way, but we also wept at what a beautiful gift it was that we actually got to see him. And we, we got to hold him. And as we wept, our grief 
truly did become a holy place. When we come in here to church, we often talk about being able to sense the presence of the Lord as we sing and as we pray. Well, in that hospital room, we could sense the presence of the Lord with us. And as Haley and I wept, Jesus wept. See, when you're going through grief, there's, there's a time for right answers. For me and Haley, there was a time to know that, yes, we will recover, and yes, we will heal, and yes, one day we might get to have more children, and yes, one day we might find fulfillment into something else. There's, there's a place and there's an understanding for that. And there's, there's a time to understand that one day, one beautiful, wonderful day, we will get to meet our son again. We'll get to see him for the person that God made him to be. And there's, there is a time to know that. But it wasn't in that hospital room. In that hospital room, what we didn't need was a God who was victorious, who was just going to suddenly magic us out of that place and take us to a place of sunshine and rainbows. In that hospital room, we needed a God who could grieve. We have a God who grieves. He is not a God who is far or distant. In fact, the very nature of our God is a God who has constantly heard his people cry and reaches out to be among them. The story of Jesus himself coming to earth is that story of humanity groaning underneath the weight of sin, selfishness, and oppression. There's humanity that is grieving. And so what does God choose to do? God chooses to come and be a part of it. And walk through it with us. And then once he has sat with us and he has borne our pain and he has borne our grief and he has borne our shame, he then leads us to a new world. Because there will be a day when there will be no more grief. There will be a day when death is finally vanquished. And it will have no hold over any one of us anymore. And that day will come. But for now, we still walk through grief. And so the message for tonight is so simple because really it's the only thing I could imagine hearing when I was in that place. There are theological answers we can give you. There are places where God wants to do healing and loving work in you. But if you are in a place of grief or loss, if you are at a place where you are mourning something that has been taken from you, please know that Jesus is here and he weeps with you. He is not distant from you in your time of need. Now, in that place of grief, in that place of loneliness and longing, that is the place where he is most close. And it is only Jesus, only Jesus could take the darkest place in my marriage and in my life, and only Jesus could, could transform that terrible, sterile hospital room with our dead baby into one of the most holy and sacred 
and special moments of my life. Because he is present with you in your grief and in your loss. If I can ask the team to come back up. As we've been going through the series, I, I've been thinking a lot about tonight and trying to think about how to do it well. And there's, there's no part of me, when I shared my story, there's no part of me that is doing this because I want to whip up an emotional, emotional fervor within you. I'm not trying to manipulate anyone into tears or anyone into having any sort of an emotional reaction. Far from it. That would be the most dishonest and sick, despicable thing I could imagine. We're taking tonight in the opportunity, and I shared what I shared because this place, this church, this family is a place where you can grieve, where it is okay to not be okay, where it is okay for you to mourn the loss that you are experiencing. And it's not okay because we're just real good at it. Let's be honest. Grief is the worst and no one wants to walk through it. It's the most, one of the most painful experiences you go through. And in fact, most of us spend most of our time doing everything we can to avoid grief. Whether we're going through it personally, we try to avoid it by doing anything else, keeping busy, drinking, smoking, doing anything we can to avoid looking at it. Or if we have friends who are walking through grief, nothing is more terrifying than doing the casual, hey, how's your week? And having someone respond, terrible, I lost a friend. We're awful at grief because it's uncomfortable and it's messy and it doesn't fit into any boxes. But what makes this space okay to grieve in is because Jesus is here. And he is a man of sorrows who is very well acquainted with grief. When I was in that hospital room, a thought struck me. I could sense so clearly Jesus there with me. And then when I thought about being there with me, I realized he was there with Mary and Martha. And he has been there with every single person since. Every victim of domestic abuse, every child of divorced parents, every person who's lost a friend or a family member to suicide or to Alzheimer's, or dementia, or cancer, with every single person, Jesus has walked with them. And there has never been someone for whom Jesus was too afraid to go to, for whom the topic was too difficult or too awkward. So when we talk about Jesus being acquainted with grief, he is acquainted with our grief. And so you can be with him. Even though that night I had no answers and over the next few months there was a constant progression of me walking through it back and forth and you know people often talk about grief as something that you heal from. I don't, I've never found it to be that way. Instead I found grief to be a lot like, a lot like a weight. An incredibly heavy and powerful weight that when it first hits you it's goddamn unbearable. And it's, there's nothing else you can think of other than that weight. But over time, 
the weight never goes away. You just become more comfortable carrying it. And I think for me that has happened as Jesus has continued to be with me on that journey. And so tonight I want to say to you, it is okay to not be okay. It is okay to not fit those boxes and it is okay to mourn and to grieve forcefully and powerfully. It is okay to throw all of your accusations at God saying, if God, if you would have done this, if you would have been this, if you would have tried this and I wouldn't be in the place that I am, that is okay. It's not the first time Jesus would have heard it and it won't be the last. And the more you rant and the more you rave, the closer Jesus will come to you with arms open embracing you. Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. And because of that, we as Christians and as a church and as a family, we can grieve. And that is a wonderful and beautiful and sacred part of our life together. Let's pray. Jesus, there are no words. There's nothing I or anyone here can say that'll be good enough to address what is going on in many of our lives. But I thank you that you don't care. And I thank you that you're here anyway. And even if we try and push you away, you stay with us because that's who you are. Help us to know that. In those deepest, darkest moments of grief, it's so hard to know that you are there. Make yourself known. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy.